Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Michael Casey and Sheila Warren for the Money Reimagined podcast as they explore the connection between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, you're Sheila Warren. Hello, and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Sheila Warren. This week, I'm on the ground in Houston, Texas at Sarah Week. Sarah Week is the largest gathering of high-profile executives and energy ministers in the entire world. Some call it the Davos of energy, which I personally find somewhat hilarious. But I will say there are 8,000 people here in Houston including John Kerry, John Podesta, a bunch of senators and CEOs from all these major companies. Uh, We were invited as CCI to come here, and I'm speaking on a panel today talking about mining and how mining can actually help with infrastructure and help with the energy crisis that we're in. But it's also the week of the Empower Conference, which is a Bitcoin mining event that focuses specifically on energy and is happening across town. So we thought it was a great chance to kind of revisit this topic that we haven't chatted about in a while. And Michael, we, we really haven't talked about Bitcoin mining, Bitcoin data centers in a little while. What are your thoughts on the state of affairs? Ah, okay. Well, I mean, it's not been the easiest time for miners. Clearly, toward the end of the year with the price dropping and then you know a, a lot of the challenges around financing and the fact that the, the difficulty rate really took a long time to adjust low, which is the classic you know mechanism. We can go into that wider discussion with our guests, but it was a very difficult time and we had a number of bankruptcies and so forth. My sense is, and I'll get to our guests weigh in, but that things have calmed a little with the moderate recovery of the Bitcoin price and with as the, as the network's hash rate and difficulty levels got to something a little bit more manageable. But I, I find mining just absolutely fascinating for, this, for the fact that <laughs> I agree. It, it functions. <laughs> you know, if, if you look at one element of it, it can be, and I think that maybe last year suggested towards the end that it wasn't, but it can almost function like this incredibly perfect market, right? Where prices down, people turn off their machines, and then ultimately, you know, that leads to this, supposed to lead to this adjustment that then makes it profitable for those who are left. And so you get this, this idea uh, in economics of like demand and supply adjusting very quickly to, obviously there's all these other different factors that go into it, but and the price of energy, which I'm sure we'll get into now, is, is a key one. But it's amazing how fast this industry has learned to adapt and change to these forces. I think that's partly because it's such a you know tight margin business. And, and so it, it actually has a lot of innovation going on behind it to figure out how to more efficiently do this. And that obviously feeds into incredibly important discussions around energy, energy usage, and you know renewables and so forth, which I know we'll, we'll get into. 
So I'm yeah. Well, it. it's been it's been fascinating being here here on the ground and just I, I started the day with this this thing called the Texas Power Breakfast, which is kind of what it sounds like packed room, <laughs> and it was the CEO of ERCOT, it was the CEO of Shell. Uh, it was uh, Peter Lake, who, who is a, a Texas uh, um, uh, regulator who basically is working on energy stuff. Uh, it was fascinating because a question was asked, you know, how are you thinking about crypto data centers, Bitcoin mines, Bitcoin mining in terms of helping with, with stabilization? And the answers were so sophisticated, super sophisticated here on the ground in Texas. And that's fascinating because I think that's not necessarily reflected globally, but there is awareness, I think, within the more traditional energy industry about the unique aspects of this innovation and what it could actually mean mm. uh, for the energy situation that we find ourselves in globally. But yes, I definitely want to bring in our guests uh, to help us make sense of all of this. So we're joined today by our guest, Margot Paez, who's a fellow at the Bitcoin Policy Institute, and Will Foxley, who is the director of content at Compass Mining. Uh, he's also a co-host of The Hash, which you can watch on Coindesk TV or listen to on the podcast network. Uh, so why don't we start, Will, with you? What are you kind of hearing and seeing uh, here in Texas? Yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, Texas, missing out on power this week. I wish I was going down to it, but I was at a different uh, Bitcoin meetup last week in Wyoming, which another energy bastion uh, in the US. So definitely a lot of energy conversations happened there last week around Bitcoin mining and energy. Uh, for Texas, it's a lot of the story around Bitcoin mining is looking back on 2022 and seeing all the contagion, the Chapter 11 bankruptcies, uh, the fraud, the collapses of all these huge mega mines. And then the conversation now is turning to regeneration. Where are we going to go forward if this is going to springboard? Looks like it is, as you mentioned, Michael, there. Uh, looks like we are springboarding and getting back into the groove of things. Where are we going to go, go from there? And how is ERCOT and all these big miners that are likely to stick around going to work together? And what do those energy sources look like? Just from speaking with a lot of miners and speaking with a lot of energy professionals, uh, from my purview at Compass, say that there's a lot more interest. And in, I think that the last year or so and all the failures has actually only uh, energized a lot of people to stay in the space. They think that, hey, this is going to stick around. These large miners are going to be pulling gigawatts of energy from Texas for the foreseeable future. They're not going to disappear. It's not like the token economy out there where you can launch a token, uh, run it for 18 months and disappear. Uh, Bitcoin miners are here to stay in Texas. And now it's the job of regulators, job of entrepreneurs, it's the job of miners to figure out how to work together and build a better grid. So one of the major topics of conversation that's happening here is grid instability. And so it's just the reliability issue around the supply of energy and that being a huge challenge. And of course, here in Texas, you know, it made national headlines when the grid went down and there wasn't any power. You know, those are not good things. Now, that happened in other parts of the country as well. But, you know, it being Texas and things that they say being bigger in Texas, you know, that did hit kind of uh, the national news. And so, of course, mines, you know, they have this flexibility in terms of how they power up and down and things like that. So, so walk us through how a Bitcoin data center can actually help with reliability of an energy supply. Yeah, definitely. It's a great thing that's, that we're seeing in Texas on the ground right now. And it's happening in a very natural way, uh, in a market driven way. Uh, so just to start from like the very basics, we have this plot of land, uh, we have some energy that gets dumped there for some reason, maybe there's an interconnect on the grid, uh, maybe there's just transmission lines that sort of end there and the energy has nowhere to go, maybe uh, the energy is produced in West Texas and we need to get to Houston, but not all the energy is going to get there. So we have this stranded amount of energy and we need to do something with it. And so a lot of times uh, people look at this and say like, hey, we can just build something here, we can build a town or we can build an industry 
but it's pretty out of the way. So why build it there? That's where Bitcoin comes in. Bitcoin can operate anywhere, right? That's a great part about uh, its fundamental principles is not only is it decentralized on the peer-to-peer side, on the node side, but even on the mining side, even though it's industrialized, it is decentralized because it can build wherever there is a monetary premium for it to exist. So we're seeing all these miners pop up in locations where there's just stranded energy. The energy's there, would soak it up anyways. So you buy a plot of land, you have an energy broker probably like introduce you to find the energy itself. You set up the mine. Uh, we're seeing mines normally larger scale in Texas than we're seeing in other parts of the US. Other parts of the US, we're seeing like 10 to 50 megawatt size mines. That's pretty typical. In Texas, you're basically starting out at 50 megawatts and I've seen mines up to uh, a gigawatt. So large scale facilities at that point. And these locations, you have to work with ERCOT in order to get on the grid. And ERCOT is the Energy Reliability Council of Texas. It's often touted as some sort of free government or free body within Texas, some sort of like a bureaucratic regime that operates in this free market. More or less, it is an arm of the Texas government. It works with a few other regulators in order to moderate the supply and demand of electricity, which is also a market just like any other market out there, right? There's supply side and there's the demand side here. And so these big miners have to talk with ERCOT to figure out how they're going to get on the grid. These miners buy a bunch of machines, they buy the rights to the energy, and then they start mining from there. Uh, right now, the scene in Texas, like I said, there's been a lot of chapter 11, so there's a lot of restructuring. There's a lot of these mines out there that people are still plugging in machines at. Yeah, I'll, I'll leave it there for any other for, for the questions though. Let's, let's bring you in here, Margot. The thing that's, I think, I've always just been fascinated by this idea that, that you know, Bitcoin mining can play a, a, a sort of a, a moderating role within grid management that, you know, and particularly when it comes to renewables, the problems that are faced with solar energy and the duck curve where all of the, you know, the solar is produced in the middle of the day when no one's using it. And then it's all consumed at the end of the day. And this this peaks and trough challenge that grid managers have to face. This argument that, you know, Bitcoin miners being able to either pick up the excess supply or, you know, tone down their uh, their own demand when supply is is short is a really interesting idea, but it's always struck me as one that it requires this policy leadership in, because if we do want to move to a renewable future, you kind of need some coordinated approach to all this. So I don't know whether, whether ERCOT is is, uh, is leading the way here, whether we're, whether we're learning much. It still seems to me that much of the policy debate around Bitcoin is still trapped in some fairly basic dichotomies about what it is, whether it's good or bad, and 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 some of this more sophisticated, nuanced stuff is by the wayside. So what are you seeing in the way, the way of policy thinking specifically around these ideas? Yeah, so I think the policy is very much lagging behind what is actually happening on the ground, especially in ERCOT. But I mean, of course, across the country, Bitcoin miners are doing a lot of really interesting, innovative things in this regard. And we are seeing demand response uh, type activity from Bitcoin miners in other states, like in Tennessee, for example, Grid has recently did something like that for Winter Storm Elliot. And unfortunately, the policymakers are getting their information from people who are posing as experts on the Bitcoin industry when they actually know very little about even how the Bitcoin network functions. And that's really unfortunate because it is it can really set the industry back quite a bit. And what we don't want to see is Bitcoin ending up in the same situation that nuclear ended up, where uh, you know the, the, this industry was sidelined for decades and is only now starting 
people are starting to realize that maybe they should take another look at at nuclear power. So it's it, it takes you know organizations like the Bitcoin Policy Institute to go out there, educate the policymakers, educate the energy industry, and let them know that. Bitcoin has these unique properties. It is like a data center, but it's a it, it's very flexible. It can ramp up and down within seconds. It can help stabilize the electrical grid. It can help manage uh, these negative price uh, situations that happen often. In particular, in ERCOT, for example, we see that with nodal pricing going negative. I mean, there's there's so many possibilities. Just just seeing a Bitcoin mining co-locate with with a solar farm. That is struggling to meet its investment or or financial return, I think, is really significant for the energy transition. But unfortunately, policymakers still think that Bitcoin is is like whale oil, which I think is what Senator Markey called it yesterday, <laughs> and that doesn't really advance the discussion at all. What you're referring to is Senator Markey's comments during a hearing of the Committee on Environment and Public Works yesterday, which was focused on the energy usage of, of mining. And that was in advance of a bill that he is uh, sponsoring, which is talking about transparency for miners and more transparency and disclosure around environmental impact of mining. And and also just level set quickly for, for those of our audience, because we haven't talked about this topic in a little while on the show. Mining is, is the term that is used in the industry. However, nothing about this resembles an actual mine as you would understand a mine. It's not, they're not underground. There's no hard hats, you know, situation kind of thing. They really do um, operate more like data centers. But as Margo noted, their flexibility and the ability to dial up and down uh, the uh, demand is, is really different. It's quite different from when you think of as an ordinary data center, where, of course, the operation of a data center 24-7, 365 is one of the most important you know, functions of a data center. These are quite different. But the optics of them, you know, you tour them, they're above ground, you, it's a bunch of servers. Uh, it's very different from the popular understanding of what a mine actually looks like. Michael, over to you. Yeah, sure. Um, so, so Margo, we'll talk before about how you know the activity here is being is happening in an organic market driven way which i think is is one of the beauties of, of of the way this works on the other hand the basic thinking for any location and energy source agnostic miner is you know find me the cheapest energy right and so where there are subsidies or whether the, even if there aren't subsidies and there are you know coal-fired plants for example it, whether it's in the US or Kazakhstan or anywhere i mean you're going to get miners just going there and if it proves to be commercially or profitable for them. So I, I feel like there's just an absolute need for policy here, not, not in fact to, as to whether it's going to ban or not Bitcoin or impose restraints on it, but literally that energy policymakers start to proactively think about how you know, this phenomenon, which is simply not going to go away regardless, it will all go offshore, it will go to dirty power places in you know, other parts of the world if it has to, how that phenomenon needs to be, you know, in some respects, you know, coalesced and brought to bear in, in a way that is is valuable to you know a, a sort of a more renewable energy framework. So I mean, I mean, it sounds like Texas may be there, but I mean, beyond the question about whether people think Bitcoin is whale oil or not, I mean, are, are there any policymakers who are thinking in terms of that proactive capacity to sort of build grid management policies around this 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 approach and specifically around? You know, underwriting renewables is something you referred to. Right. Yeah. The only politician that I know, let's say, on the Democrat side is Ro Khanna. He's a 
representative in the house from California, we had a meeting with one of his staffers last year where he was, they were talking about possibly introducing a green mining bill, but I haven't heard anything since then. And I don't think that they ever introduced that legislation. So I don't really expect to see much from the Democrat side. I think right now, most of the momentum is on the Republican side. But of course, you know, the the messaging is a little bit mixed there as well. So I, I really think that there's the politicians on the federal level are not there yet. They're not up to speed. And and on the state level, they aren't either. In fact, you know, as an example, in the state of New York, they've done the exact opposite. I wrote a policy paper on the New York moratorium legislation where I outlined a number of ways that they could positively incentivize Bitcoin mining in their states. You know, not all states in, in this union are ready to go full on with it, with a renewable energy transition, right? But the ones that are, are missing that point that they can utilize Bitcoin and they can push Bitcoin mining in a direction that is beneficial both to the mining companies, the mining operators, and to their decarbonization climate goals. So I, I just, I wish that I could say, yeah, you know, <laughs> this, this person, this state, they're doing yeah. it, but they're not. Everybody is, is so behind. Yeah, we're still very much caught in the conversation about, you know, not what source of energy, but the amount of consumption, right? Uh, but Will, with the, you know, market downturn and the, and the challenges that miners faced last year, did that impact energy source decisions? I mean, did it, did it have any impact on how much uh, renewables were being used versus, say, fossil fuels? You know, I'm just wondering whether miners felt miners might feel they have liberty in some respects to be a little bit more uh, green, if you like, in a healthier economic environment than in a, a more difficult one. Yeah, great question. And there's a few different angles to take that one. Uh, so the market bottom in December for, for miners was definitely extremely difficult. And it hurt a lot of miners in the capital side of things, which definitely plays into how you can select your energy sources. Uh, so through September, I'd say end of December, when we saw a hash price, which is basically a unit uh, to describe how much revenue you get per hash of Bitcoin you mine, that bottomed in December. And once we came out of that bottom, we saw a lot of capital being willing to like actually invest in miners once again. From September to December, nobody is willing to write any check to Bitcoin miners at all, unless you're talking about high uh, 19%, 18% interest rate debt payments. And miners didn't really have the ability to do that. So it's really high capital costs. Uh, and there's no equity deals to be had. Uh, no one was really able to sell their Bitcoin because they had sold it all during the summer. And so these miners were sort of looking for a lifeline on the capital side of things. And if you correlate that to the energy market, we have the same issue, right? They, they want to buy energy, but if you don't have any money to do so, you're in a pickle and you're always going to find the lowest energy you can, as you said earlier, Michael. And so I think when it comes to it, there wasn't a lot of deployments uh, in Q4 last year because there wasn't a lot of money. Now that we're on the other side of things, we're still in this bear market, but we're probably out of the bottom or hopefully we're out of the bottom. And that means that miners are still like in the survival mode. They're still going to look for the cheapest energy. And the latest phenomenon we're seeing is the fact that miners are turning to other sources of revenue in order to increase their bottom line. So I would say that this is more of a transfer. Uh, this is more of a change than what we would have expected. We would expect maybe miners to just continue looking for cheap energy sources and mine Bitcoin and make leaner operations. But they're actually turning to some tokenomic schemes, uh, sustainable mm. Bitcoin mining, 
uh, is one company that does that. They just announced an initiative with CleanSpark, basically tokenizes your carbon credits. It's a carbon credit scheme of sorts. And they're getting paid to mine Bitcoin on cheaper energy or cleaner energy, I should say. We're also seeing other miners like Hut8 lean further and further into computation as a service, as opposed to just Bitcoin mining. Hut8 has a lot of different AI schemes or just general computation investments up in Canada. Uh, hmm. And they're pulling revenue from that and you get more sustainable recurring revenue. So I'd say for miners, just like really summarize it here. It's less about the energy when it comes to like not having the capital and more about diversifying your revenue. Where are you going to pull hmm. your revenue from? Because at the end of the day, all these Bitcoin miners, they just have to buy energy where it's cheap and where they can. And the greenness of it is great, but really only if you're a public company that's under the spotlight. Right. That innovation, though, is it really interesting. It, it speaks to that, I think, that force I was alluding to at the beginning, you know, where they're imperative, really, under, you know, the thin margins that many of them have to operate under. How are you going to extract more value? And yeah, whether it's in new forms of revenue or in, you know, innovating around cost, the cost structure, it seems to be an endless and, and fascinating aspect of how, how mining moves forward. In light of that, I think, you know, as, as I was talking about at the beginning, I just want to understand, why did it take so long for the hash rate to respond lower? Like to our listeners who are new to this, I mean, basically the, the, the total hash rate is a measure of how much computational power is out there amongst all the miners mining on the Bitcoin network. And the logic is that as the price falls and profitability falls, then you know, mine, you know, miners would turn off their machines, um, which would then result in what's known as a difficulty adjustment. Uh, within the protocol, which is designed to keep, you know, essentially moderate the continued, uh, you know, value equation for returns and, and actually keep Bitcoins flowing onto the network at, at a regular rate. But it seemed to take a long time, Will, uh, last year. You know, what was going on? You tell me. I'm a little baffled. Yeah, great question. This is something a lot of miners have been thinking about. I think it really comes back to the capital side of things once again. And I, I think a lot of people, when they think of Crypto in general, I think all the capital might rest on the token side of things and like the Ethereum's and smart contracts of the world. But mining is highly capital intensive. Like these are not cheap energy contracts that we're talking about. These are not cheap facilities we're talking about. And the machines themselves are also very expensive, especially when Bitcoin is mooning. Because if you think about it, these machines are just Bitcoin printers, right? So they're going to track the price of Bitcoin. When newer generation machines were coming out in 2020, 2021, they were priced around 2000 to 2500 USD. That changed when Bitcoin price went up to the point where we saw your S19 ASIC, which is essentially like the stock version of any ASIC you're going to buy nowadays, cost about $10,000. So, you know, it saw a 5x gain on the cost of an individual miner. Those miners were then supposed to be placed into facilities in Texas, and Georgia, and Washington, and Canada. But the problem is we had this post COVID issue with supply chains. Mm. And we had all these miners rushing to North America to plug in all at the same time. And these facilities, frankly, just didn't have the parts. If you go and look at uh, the transformer market, it's one of the most interesting parts about Bitcoin mining, I think, from the last two years. The transformer market, so the, these, these huge pieces for uh, conducting electricity into facilities and making electricity usable from the power generating station down to the individual miner. The price of these things went astronomical because of Bitcoin miners, because Bitcoin miners needed these electrical parts so badly, but they were so hard to come by uh, that the price of these things went to the moon. Hmm. And what we saw is that hundreds of thousands of ASICs 
uh, likely about 250,000 A6 in total, were stranded sitting in boxes in Texas, and probably about a million all over the, the globe, just waiting to be plugged in. And now we've seen that untangle a little bit, right? So like it's we're past July 2022, and we're about nine months removed from that. There's been time for these facilities to get ASICs plugged in. Bitcoin price has responded a little bit, and now we can actually have like a little bit of solid revenue. We're in the green a bit, and we're seeing this flood of hash rate come on. The bummer part about it is we're still in the bear market, right? And so more ASICs are plugging in. means the competition is worse than ever right at the time when Bitcoin's price isn't quite where miners want it to be. Calling all early stage crypto, blockchain, and Web3 startups, teams, and builders. Apply to Coindesk PitchFest, powered by Google Cloud, and pitch live on stage at Consensus in Austin this April. Winners will receive two VIP Piranha Passes to Consensus 2024, featured coverage on Coindesk, and an invitation to present at Coindesk's Private Investor Summit, Ideas 2023. Learn more and apply at consensus.coindesk.com slash pitchfest. So we talked a little bit about clean energy, and I want to get into that a little bit more. So, so one of the challenges that we're seeing in a transition to, you know, again, what's called cleaner energy uh, is byproducts of some forms of energy production. So flaring is one that comes up, gas flaring. Uh, and this is a very, it's, it's a very negative environmental impact. It's a huge problem. And one of the challenges is that oil production, which leads to this gas flaring, happens in very remote you know, locations, oftentimes, not always. And there isn't really a way to kind of capture any of this. So Will or Margaret, can you just talk a little bit about this phenomenon? Because it's something that has come up here at Zero Week, and it's really interesting because there's kind of a uniqueness to how Bitcoin miners can help with this because of their ability to locate and co-locate in some of these very remote regions. So maybe Will, over to you for to start. Yeah, I'll go really quick and boot over to Margo. Uh, Giga Energy is, I think, the most interesting startup to look at for this and this topic. Crusoe Energy is another uh, more established company to look at, but Giga Energy is featured prominently right now in Power. I'm sure they're at Sarah as well. They're a startup, two guys who went to Texas A&M. They started mining Bitcoin back in 2017, 2018, based on some oil wells that were leaking uh, natural gas into the environment. These oil wells were actually family wells that uh, were passed down generations. And they've just been sitting like South Houston. Nobody's been really been using them. And they figured out that, hey, if we plug in a natural gas generator on top of the site, we plug in some Bitcoin miners right next to it, we can earn income and we can take, uh, take a hold of this environmental problem that's on our land. So they started doing that. And about three, four years later, post that, they've raised a $10 million seed round. And now they're going international and looking to uh, invest in the Middle East with the same technology. And just like you were saying there, Sheila, like the whole point of this is, hey, we can earn revenue by solving an environmental problem, which is leaking natural gas into the air for, for no purpose at all. I'll let Margot speak to the environmental side of those things since I'm not as familiar as uh, as the topic on like the devastation natural gas can cause just leaking to the atmosphere. But uh, it really does solve something for the, uh, for the environmental critics out there. The last thing I do want to throw on this is somewhat of wet blanket, though, is the fact that this is touted a lot and maybe shilled pretty heavily by Bitcoin miners, but the application itself can only be used here and there because these natural gas wells oftentimes are actually not emitting natural gas. Uh, so here in Colorado, where I'm based, there are hundreds of natural gas wells that are just open, leaking there. And a lot of people have picked them over and looked for uh, putting S19s or putting Bitcoin miners on top of them. 
but they just don't produce enough natural gas to solve the issue holistically. So you can only like use this application here and there. Margo, I'll throw it over to you though. Yeah, that's that's absolutely correct. And I'm really glad that you you added in that caveat because it's really important to contextualize this in terms of how well uh, the scales in terms of fixing these leaks using Bitcoin mining. Now, for some context on the environmental side, of course, you know, over a 20-year period, these methane emissions from these wells are like around 84 times as potent as CO2 emissions. So again, that's over 20 years. Over a 100-year period, you're looking around 20 times as more potent. And, and that's in terms of the heat trapping capabilities of these greenhouse gas emissions. So in that sense, of course, any opportunity that you have to mitigate those emissions is welcomed. I actually think that rather than focusing on these leak, leaky wells, looking at what you can do with biogas or with landfill gas may have a little bit more promise in terms of emission mitigation when it comes to methane. Because I think that they're, they may be more accessible, and I think that there are probably more sites in that particular uh, subsection of anthropogenic methane emissions where you do have enough methane gas to power Bitcoin miners. Additionally, the Bitcoin miners can act kind of like a, like a pioneer species in the sense where it show up, this investment helps build out the infrastructure. And then after a while, the that particular site can be used for other purposes, like let's say for electric vehicle charging stations. So I think that it's really, really great that we can do this. And it's really great that Giga is doing this and that Crusoe is also. But ultimately, I agree that the the scalability in the in the oil and gas field in terms of leakage is unfortunately limited. But the fact that you can do it is still important and should be commended. And we sh we should acknowledge that Bitcoin mining can do good things. And it's not you know it's not all like the stories that you hear where oh Bitcoin mining just brought on a, a coal plant and you know, a retired coal plant. It, it, it's it's much more than that. Bitcoin is is very flexible, and there there's a lot of opportunity there to do good for the planet. Well, as with anything, I think you know it, the, the nuance really matters, right? Like the details really devils in the details, and details really matter. Um, so to that end, just a, a different topic, but one that comes up a lot in this conversation is the concept of being behind the meter or in front of the meter. And so, can maybe you, starting with you, Margaret, can you just explain what those terms mean and how they're relevant to Bitcoin mining in terms of being productive in the context of the conversation that we're having. Yeah, so basically the difference is whether or not you're connected to the grid, you're getting power off the grid, or if you're you're getting power uh, from a, not from the grid, basically. I mean, that's really the simplest answer. So if, for example, you're, you have Bitcoin miners uh, being directly powered from a natural gas plant like Greenwich does in upstate New York, then you're, you're not getting power from the grid, you're behind. And... Uh, if you're in ERCOT and you're, I think, probably like Riot, you're, I, I believe you're in front of Meaner, but I'm happy to be corrected. I, I, I can easily get confused on these terminology as well. Why does this matter, Will? Like, why is this, you know, why is this part of the conversation that's something that comes up on a regular basis? Definitely. And so Margo's thing about Riot, I, I guess there'd probably be some different terminology because they're technically on an interconnect. So I think they're in mm, front okay. of the meter, but they're... So I think yeah. you're right there, but it's just like they have a set price purchase agreement, PPA, which is another term you'll hear thrown around for mining. 
uh, and it's just very, very low uh, compared to other people who are using in front of the meter. Uh, why does it matter if you're behind the meter or in front of the meter? Well, it basically depends on your cost of energy, which again is the highest capital expenditure for any miner out there, unless you're one of those unfortunate souls who decide to buy ASICs at the peak of the market. Then you have a different problem on your hands. But for a Bitcoin miner who's just buying energy straight from the grid, uh, whether that's in front of the meter or behind the meter directly from a power source, you're going to be paying for that energy every second your ASIC is online. These things are always pulling energy and therefore they're all, always purchasing energy. And you want to have the lowest cost. Typically behind the meter is the lowest cost because you're right next to the power source, right? So you're next to that coal power plant or you are next to that windmill or you're next to that solar generation plant. Uh, from a compass standpoint, we tried to find behind the meter, but it's not always as simple as it sounds. And oftentimes you can't do that because there's only so many warehouses you can put next to the power station. And maybe these power companies don't want a Bitcoin miner on site because it is loud, it is noisy, and it's another thing to take care of. Uh, so oftentimes you'll find them uh, in front of the meter, just like Riot, uh, I believe, has found itself. Um, you're going to pay a little bit more typically if you're in front of the meter. Uh, that's just because you're generally pulling from the grid. There's more transmission going through uh, to get to your energy source or to your mining site. So something I think is really interesting is I think there's this perception or concept that energy prices are consistent and stable throughout the entire day. And like, and that's just not the case. They fluctuate throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout the year. And of course, the incentive is to try to find, as we've noted, the cheaper energy and the flexibility of Bitcoin mining operation means that I kind of think about this dating myself as like long distance telephone calls, right? Like back in the day, you would make international phone calls like after a certain time at night because it was just a cheaper price for a variety of reasons, not a great analogy. But the idea is that you can, in theory, leverage when, when demand is really, really high and prices are going up, Bitcoin mines can actually power down and then they can actually help with grid stabilization because they can stay online at times when demand is low and you don't have to power up and down a grid. So could you just comment a little bit on that and why the grid stabilization is another unique capability, essentially, of the operations that we're talking about? Yeah, so basically on the grid, Bitcoin miners are participating in demand response and they can do this in two ways. One, they can be part of uh, the grid's existing demand response program, basically acting as insurance for the grid. What that means is in times when there's peak load or there's, you know, un unusual, unexpected high demand from, from consumers or off takers, Bitcoin miners can power down. And uh, if they par participate in the program, there, there is some incentive uh, from the grid to do that. On the other hand, they can do it just by responding to the price signals. So the, the price signals can, can tell you if there's high demand or, or not enough demand. And, and the Bitcoin miners can respond in that way. And they participate in both, in both ways in ERCOT right now. And it also depends on the price of Bitcoin in terms of which option a Bitcoin miner will choose to do. If the profitability of mining Bitcoin is not high enough for you to remain in operation 24-7 for, uh, you know, or, or for like 24 hours of a day, you may not be that inclined to participate directly in a demand response program because there are certain requirements that the grid operators have for you to do that. But being price responsive is, is much more flexible. So I think that my understanding is that a lot of the miners are operating in the price response type of demand response. And ERCOT in particular has been 
leading a task force on that, trying to develop some new rules around there because they want a little bit more control over how that is happening. And I think they want to be able to plan uh, around that price responsiveness of Bitcoin miners. The reason why Bitcoin miners can do that is because they are a highly flexible load. And in fact, I believe that it was not until 2020 that ERCOT was actually able to report that for the first time they had a significant amount of load that they could call a controllable load resource. And that was made possible primarily because of Bitcoin mining. A lot of the conversation we've been having so far really is about this flexibility, the load management and so forth, which of course is one of the great opportunities that mining poses to any grid manager to try to resolve the challenges of load management. So that's that's great, right? And and as Will was talking about, there's also this, you know, it's at least where it's viable, there's gas flare-based Bitcoining, which which prevents the impact of that methane getting into the into the atmosphere and the negative stuff. But the thing that I've, I often just feel like we're just really missing the biggest opportunity of all for, and you alluded to it, Margot, a bit before about like, you know, miners can underwrite actual renewable energy development. Like it seems to me that the gas flaring is great. It's solving a problem that an existing dirty fuel consumption model produces, but it's hardly moving the economy away from gas. In some respects, it may be enabling the gas itself, which we all know is not good for the environment. Just by by resolving one problem, you're sort of you're delaying the incentive, if you like, for the world to move to renewable energies. And yet, it, it just seems obvious to me that a Bitcoin miner placed against a wind farm could underwrite their activities, could could help to fund the development of these things, and that when tied in with this conversation we're having about load management and so forth, if smart policymakers could put all these things together and they were renewably focused, they could actually do something constructive with this. It's just frustrating for me. I've been covering this for years. What do we need to do? Like, I mean, and, and a number of you are in the policy world here. How do yeah? And, and also, what can the mining? Because I think that the the dialogue from the mining community itself isn't necessarily good. Hey, we're doing we're doing Bitcoin flares. You know, we're, so we're doing doing gas flares. And to me, that's just just a real tiny piece of the of, of the story that should be being told here. And what can we all do to further this conversation in a more constructive way? But um, Will, to you first. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, I agree with you on the the gas flaring side. I think it's it's a small uh, TAM if you think about it that way. It's never going to be a huge market. I think it only makes that portion of energy market more efficient or hardens it, so we have less methane leaking out. In terms of getting to your question, like I think there are some things out there that are already happening. So Stronghold might be one of the best examples of this, where they're taking credits from the state of Pennsylvania to tackle a waste coal problem within Pennsylvania. So if you go back into Pennsylvania's history books, you'll see that they produced a lot of the steel that got us through the Industrial Revolution, that got us through both World Wars, got us through the Cold War. And now all that waste coal, which is a byproduct of coal production itself, is now sitting all over Pennsylvania. And it's just leaking into streams. It's leaking to the environment. Uh, it's not great, great for anyone. And they burn this waste coal and they get carbon credits or they get credits from the state of Pennsylvania, tax credits, I should say, in order to burn this stuff. And they make Bitcoin as well from it. So they're taking uh, advantage of an ecological problem to mine Bitcoin. And they're working on the regulatory side with the state of Pennsylvania to make it actually function as business. Now, like the, the follow up, of course, is, hey, you're still producing carbon. But I think we do need to think about the ecological problems as more than just carbon, right? Like these people live there and they have to deal with this toxic waste coal every day. And so Bitcoin miners might be able to solve 
one or two things, waste, coal, and methane leaking into the environment, I don't know if they're always going to be able to solve everything, right? They're not going to be able to maybe solve the entire climate issue here. Again, this is why I think the alignment with policy is so important, because if governments decided to stop subsidizing fossil fuels and really built a comprehensive incentive system around solar and, and wind and other renewables, and, and therefore it was by definition a cheap source of energy because of the, the incentives that are built into it, one would think that therefore miners could go there. And with that aligned, then miners can step in and start playing this sort of underwriting role. So I, I'm not looking for miners to come in and fix the world's problems on their own. It, it really needs to be a multi-stakeholder conversation. And that's the thing that I'm frustrated by the lack of. Yeah. The last bit I'll throw in there and hand over to Margo is I think Bitcoin miners are doing that to an extent in West Texas. I think oftentimes yeah. we think of these miners in West Texas using fossil fuels because it's the association with oil in Texas. But in reality, most of West Texas is just these huge wind farms and it's right. stranded energy. All these uh, wind farms were built on the back of tax credits and tax incentives to build them. And then the energy was too far away from the main cities to really be usable. We've seen companies uh, like Lancium and a bunch of private companies step in and start using that energy at its source and then start backfilling the cost of those things by paying sales tax, by paying uh, tax back into the economy. So I do think there is a world that happens. It's just going to look a little dysfunctional to start. But Margo was probably as yeah. Texas idea. definitely looks like a, a good good leader in this. Margo, yeah, final comments because we're going to wrap after this. Yeah, definitely. So in terms of stronghold, I, I just wanted to make a quick quick comment there. When you're trying to clean up an environmental disaster, which is really all of these coal piles are are really an environmental disaster, it's really hard to say for sure how can you win because first of all, the, the damage is already done and then the alternatives or the remediation efforts, neither of them are are that great. And and there's not a lot of research either into which choice is the best choice. Intuitively, I think that if you had to choose between polluting your water resources or polluting your air where uh, you know you have a, a, a massive reservoir of, of atmosphere, I would probably go with uh, polluting the air because it is extraordinarily difficult to clean up your water, you know, your groundwater once once it's been polluted. Uh, but it's this is not, you know, this is not a, a, a really a winning scenario either. What I, what I would prefer to see is if we're going to remediate coal in this way to to actually be able to capture the the emissions and then store them underground. I think that that would probably be the best scenario there uh, with with Stronghold. Now, in terms of, uh, yes, like getting Bitcoin mining to fill in these gaps with the renewable energy transition, because ultimately that is the goal and that is the that is the plan for under the Biden administration. And I, I think anybody sensible with regard to climate change would understand that we have to get uh, we have to move away from fossil fuels, that uh, policy makers really need to be educated. And so I think if if there's something that we need to do, it's really to focus on education as much as possible and put our focus really squarely on that, because there at risk of making policy that can make it much more difficult for a company like Lantium to do what they're doing or Satoshi Energy or Saluna. We don't want them to legislate and carve out 
rules that that specifically single out Bitcoin mining because Bitcoin mining really is part of the data center industry. It's just a, a, a subset of it. And Saluna, for example, they really understand this and what they're doing focused on renewable energy in, around ERCOT and Texas in, in that region where where there is congestion or where there aren't enough off takers for whatever reason, you know, they're going in and saying, we'll buy whatever excess energy you have. And we're going to set up these, these containers and they're going to have Bitcoin miners, but they're also, they can also have these other type of computing services in, in that mix. And I think that's, that's really uh, the right idea to, to really uh, try to get people to realize that, you know, Bitcoin is the first that can do this. It is, it is unique. It is, special in that sense, but it's not that special either in, in practice and what it, what it can do. And I want policymakers to understand that they don't have to be afraid of it. It's just a unique way to monetize and, and fix some of these problems while the, the energy transition is taking off. The anthropomorphizing you know, is... Is always it, remarkable. It, it, because it, it really is. Anything to do I, something. It's great. I'll tell you, you know, just, just being here again at Sarah Week and, and just... Um, We've had, you know, obviously a bunch of conversations and sat in on a bunch of sessions and I'm on a session. Uh, but it's just the, the awareness is is bimodal. Either there's folks who are like, Bitcoin mining is going to be a part of our transition to you know, our energy transition. It's going to help us in, in different ways, stabilize the grid or this or that in ways that are going to meet the the demand. Like the prediction that we're hearing here is uh, by 2050, there's going to be um, one third of an increase in demand uh, in the United States, across the United States uh, for energy for a variety of reasons, uh, climate and weather and, and winter peaks in addition to summer peaks and all kinds of things that are, are going to happen, um, but also just population and other kinds of things. And so there's a sensibility around that, which I think is very practical. And it's like, how can we take the unique capabilities of Bitcoin data centers, Bitcoin mines, in terms of you know, their, their geographic flexibility, their um, on and off, like all that kind of things we talked about today, how can we take that? Can we, I think it's really, can we take that and leverage it to help support the future that, that we're kind of seeing coming? And there's other folks who are just like, isn't crypto just this giant scam? And what are you talking about? And why would that have any relevance? And so it's quite bimodal, which I'm finding very interesting. And, and what I'm actually hearing here, and this is, of course, anecdotal, just from wandering around you know, today, is, is a lot of power companies themselves understand this, whereas the policymakers understand it much less. So again, that practical reality of what can we do, we need, we need to figure this out. We need reliable energy, period, full stop. How can this help with that? Are, are focused in a practical way, whereas some of the policymakers, are, I think there is a narrative problem. And Michael, we've talked about this on the show quite a bit, where you know what's happening with the narrative around crypto, which of course Bitcoin, Bitcoin mining is getting caught up in. And that narrative around the like, this is a terrible, terrible thing and everything about it's awful or it's unnecessary. And so it's just using energy that could go other places as if that's fungible in that way, which of course it isn't. You know, all those things I think are getting pulled into the policy discussion, which of course is how policy works. You have to address common perceptions, what happens in the media, all of that comes into play when people are forming their opinions about how much attention and time to put to learning about any particular topic, given the variety of topics they have on their plates. So I consider this, you know, thanks to both of you, to Marco Paez, to Will Foxley, and illuminate uh, some of the reality that's actually happening uh, on the ground with this technology, with this aspect of, of the technology. And let's hope that uh, we're going to be able to make some more progress in terms of getting real facts out there and debunking some of the sort of 
I would, I would say at this point, somewhat lazy mythology that seems to persist around this activity. So thank you to all of our listeners, as always, for joining us. Stay tuned and come back next week for another episode of Money Reimagined. You've been listening to Money Reimagined. Today's show has been produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau. Announcements by Adam B. Levine and our executive producer is Jared Schwartz. Our theme song is by Shepard. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at podcast at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.